Well, good morning. Great to be here with you, uh, North Point. Those of you tuning in online uh, from our Vagerville campus or from Chauvin. My name is Trevor, and we're digging into this uh, series in Philippians together. And last week, uh, we were hanging out in chapter two. We've, we've come through chapter one, and, and we're six weeks in now, and we came into chapter two, and I was able to explain a little bit, if you caught last week, and if you didn't, you, uh, feel free to catch up in this series on our YouTube channel. Uh, it is definitely worth checking out uh, the whole series. It's been so wonderful going through this with you guys. But we came into chapter two, and it, the tone that Paul, the Apostle Paul uses is just a little bit different. It's just a little bit different um, than what we were receiving in chapter one, because Chapter one was Paul kind of saying like, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of you guys. I love you guys. He who began a good work in you, he's going to continue that work. He's spurring these guys on, these believers in Christ, these followers of Jesus that have made that choice to say, hey, I want to follow Jesus. And, and they're gathering as the church. And here Paul is pastoring them and reminding them that God has a work to do in their lives. And then his tone changes a little bit because he's starting to address some issues that are showing up in the church. And Paul wants these guys to know that if you want to have an effective faith, if you want to walk this out, if you don't want your faith to be robbed from you, then there's some things that cannot get into your lives. And if they do, it's going to change that. It's going to rob you. And so Paul is extorting to these guys. He's coming before them and he's saying, listen, you need to walk in humility and in unity and you need to live these things out so that nothing would come in and rob you, that there would be nothing that would be damaging to your faith, damaging to the effectiveness, uh, effectiveness of Christ in your life, and to you guys walking this out as the church. And so that's where we find ourselves today as we dig in to Philippians 2, 12 to 16a. This is what Paul continues on to tell these believers. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you Hold firmly to the word of life. So we came through the first 11 chapters, uh, first 11 verses of chapter 2, where Paul's called these guys to unity. He's called them to be like Christ. And, and really, in a lot of ways, the change in tone, it's maybe a little bit intense, a little bit awkward, because it's from this joyful, kind of friendly, and it almost feels like maybe this isn't as joyful, but it's worth us knowing that there's much joy in Paul's words here. This isn't a rebuking of these believers. This isn't to make them feel bad, like, you suck, you could never live this out, you better change your lives, right? That's not what Paul is doing here. There, there's actually so much joy in Paul as he pastors them to share with them, listen, hey, you guys, just as you've always obeyed, he, he's reminding them, listen, I see the obedience, I see the care, I see the love, but here's some things that you should come awake to that will serve your lives and the church so well if you would have ears to hear and eyes to see. And that's my prayer for us today, church, 
is that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what God would call us to. And, and that you would know that it would serve your lives so well. And that the Lord would be well pleased. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's spurring them onward and upward in unity and humility that he's just unpacked. Now he says to them, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, not only when I'm there, but even more so now that I'm not. He says, continue on, keep going. Don't stop working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't stop doing that. And these believers, they, they would have had a lot of respect for Paul. Paul was pastoring them and mentoring them, but Paul hasn't been there for a while now. And that's something that we understood coming through chapter one. Pastor Michael uh, unpacked that in the first few weeks of this, that, that Paul at this point, he's in prison. Paul's sitting in prison and he's pending this out to, to these believers and, and he's letting them know, like, listen, I, I'm not sure if I'll ever be there. Paul doesn't know what this is gonna look like. It, it comes down to there's really two realities for Paul. He's either going to be killed or he's gonna be set free. And so he, he comes to this place with these believers where this reality is highlighted and he says this statement to them, I know how you act when I'm there, but even more so when I'm not. And in a lot of ways, more than him making a statement to them of saying like, hey, I know what you're gonna do, he's actually really getting them to consider a question. You could really read his words and understand it as Paul saying like, listen, I know how you act while I'm there, but how are you going to live this out when I'm not? In my absence, will you continue forward? Will you continue to walk in obedience? The cat's away, what are the mice gonna do? Paul knows something that we all know very well in our lives. He knows that, that when our, sometimes the authority doesn't seem to be present, when sometimes the authority isn't visible, that sometimes our actions change so quickly. He knows that that present authority, that there's a greater tension of influence when there's that authority that we recognize in our lives in the room in spaces where we know they're, they're peeking in, they, they can see what we're up to. And when that authority isn't present, that sometimes our actions change. And we know that this happens because we live, it, like we're in Edmonton. In Edmonton, this is like a, a, a daily reality for all of us because there's nobody on the Anthony Hende that speeds up when they see the lime green truck up on the bridge. Am I right? Like. Nobody's like, hey, if I just go fast enough, the photo radar just might not catch my plates, right? Instead, what happens is like you see all the vehicles in front of you, red amber bulbs start lighting up everywhere. Because we see the authorities present, we might not like the authority. We might mutter some words as we drive under that bridge. But only a fool would speed up. And so the awareness of that authority changes our actions. And this is so true to our lives in so many ways. Authority that's present often calls us to deeply consider our actions and our choices. I remember one time when I was uh, a 10 year old, often in, in summer, much like we're in right now, um, 
me and my little brother would find ourselves at home. And uh, mom and dad worked. And, and so what would happen is mom would often sneak away at lunch and she would come pick up me and my little brother. My older brother was five and a half years older than me. And so he'd often be off with his friends doing his own thing. And, and so me and my little brother, we'd be kind of fending for ourselves, hoping that we could, you know, find something to do. And mom would pick us up and drop us at the golf course or at the pool or at like a play center and, and just get us busy, which I don't think you'd really do nowadays. Um, I don't know that I'd ever drop my kids off at the pool for five and a half hours at the age of 10. But, uh, but this is what you did back then. It was the 90s, right? And um, I called my mom at work the one day. And I said, Mom, we're so bored. Can you come pick us up and drop us off at the pool? And my mom was like, hey, I'm so sorry. I can't today. And like any reasonable 10-year-old, I was like, I understand, Mom. I respect that. Thank you for working so hard. I love you so much. And I hung up the phone and definitely didn't begin scheming how we could swim at our house that didn't have a pool. Um, and that's actually what we did as a, a, a brilliant 10-year-old. I pulled my eight-year-old's brilliance into this and we decided, man, maybe we could fill the bathtub and take turns doing laps in the tub and it'd be like going to the pool. But then we thought, well, we take baths all the time, so this wouldn't be the experience we're looking for. We're looking for something a little more genuine, a little more different than just being at home. And we just thought, you know what would be amazing? If we somehow got the rain barrel from outside into the house, because then we could hook up the tap with warm water and fill the barrel with warm water and it'd be like having a hot tub in the house. And, and so that's exactly what we did. We figured out how to get the rain barrel into mom and dad's kitchen. And uh, we had the garden hose going all across the kitchen counter over to the kitchen sink, and we took hours to fill this rain barrel with warm water so that we could have the most brilliant hot tub that two brilliant minds have ever come up with. The problem was is it took a long time to do. By the time we got that rain barrel in and got it full enough to start getting in and enjoying the, the spoils of our labor, hours had went by. But we got that thing full enough and we were hopping in and out and there was water everywhere. But then we thought, you know what would be even greater? If we could both get in the barrel at the same time and join together in the joy of this hot tub and it definitely didn't overflow that barrel and there definitely wasn't even more water everywhere. The real problem was we didn't notice the clock and my mom walked through the front door <laughs> to a rain barrel in her kitchen and more water in a house than there ever should be. And she loved it, right? It was like she recognized the, the genuine creativity and spurred us on to our rooms, you know? And uh, sometimes we make decisions when the authority's not present that we just wouldn't make when the authority's present. Am I right? And we all have stories like that. And some of them are funny and some of them aren't. And Paul raises this question to the church. He, he says, listen, I know how you press in when I'm there. I know what it's like when I'm there, but what's it gonna look like when I'm not? When are you a Christian? It's really what he's asking them, when are you a Christian? And I think this is such a relevant question for our lives. Every single day that we would take inventory of this question, that we would ask ourselves this, when am I a Christian? How does my faith change in the spaces and places that I find myself in? Does it change when I'm at work? Does it change when I'm at school or university or college? Does it change with my spouse or, or with those certain friends that I hang out with? 
Is there a shifting that happens in my life about how Christian I am in certain spaces and places? Am I only a Christian on Sundays? Am I a Christian of convenience? Or would I be able to say that I fight the good fight of faith? That, that I walk this out daily? That this is something that I, I'm living out in my life? Or if I did inventory, would I genuinely find myself wondering, is there people that would be shocked in my life to know I'm a Christian? They'd genuinely be shocked to know that I'm Christian. When are you a Christian? See, Paul spurs these believers on. He says, live this out. Not just because of me being present, but even more so in my absence, because there's actually a present authority that he's been pointing to all through chapter one. There's an ever-present authority that he's gonna bring up many more times in this letter that he's trying to draw their awareness to. He just finished saying in chapter one at the end of it that they would have just read. He says, listen, that one day there's gonna be every knee that will bow and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus, the name above every name. This is the present authority. How are you living this out? In Paul's words, when we think about what he's saying here, it should highlight this reality for our own lives that one day we will give an account for how we have lived. How have I lived out this faith? How have I stewarded the gift of Jesus Christ who died on a cross to set me free? Have I lived it out? Have I been working out my faith? Because it's not gonna be about my, my parents' faith one day. It's not gonna be about my friends. It's not gonna be about my spouse's faith. It's not gonna be about whether or not I was just a good person. It's not gonna be about Pastor Mike's faith or if I went to church enough. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We'll stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he's either gonna say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or he's gonna say, depart from me. I didn't even know you. When am I a Christian? Paul says, take ownership of your faith. Take ownership of it, work it out. Have an operational faith, a faith that is growing, that's moving forward in obedience to where God is calling even more when no one's looking than when the eyes are on you. And then he says to do this with fear and trembling. Such an awkward phrase for us to read. It's one of those phrases in scripture that so often we, we just kind of skip over it because we're like fear and trembling. Like, it's a really weird wording. Like, work this out with fear and trembling. I, like, I thought God loved me. I'm not supposed to fear those that love me, right? But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying to view God as like a bear that's like ready to attack you and you're a berry. Like, that's not, that's not what he's pointing to. It's a misunderstood statement that we need to grab a hold of it. It's about a reverence that we're called to have in our lives. Paul is talking about a holy fear, a reverence that should be present in the lives of those that know and follow God. And man, do we need this as believers, as the church. We absolutely need to grab hold of an understanding of what it means to have reverence in our lives for a God who is holy and blameless, a God who loves you where you're at and calls you into holiness. It's life-changing. 
You see, reverence in our lives, it, it recognizes God's holiness, his power, his authority in a way that can't help but lead us to adoration and respect and obedience and care that we would honor him with our lives, with our actions, with our choices, that we would live out our faith. Commentary writer Homer Kent says it like this. He says that understanding what it means to have reverence for God is wisdom for believers as it will open our eyes and our attitudes to a holy fear of God that trembles at the thought of sin in our lives. Reverence in our lives, it starts to protect us from making those choices when we think the authority isn't present. It protects us from making those choices that wouldn't honor the name above all names. And in so many ways, our, our world has fully lost sight or ignored what it means to have a reverence for God, who's all-knowing, who's all-seeing. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Like, knowing that God is ever-present shouldn't be the thing that makes us, like, fear and feel sick, it should be the thing that excites us and brings us alive to the reality that the God of the universe wants to do life with you every day. That's good news for us. He wants to guide you. He wants to walk with you in the good, the bad, and the ugly. But there's a reverence that we need to have, that the ever-present authority, the name above all names, he's present with us here and now, here and now. And yet we so quickly lose an understanding of this. Or, or, or we jump around it in our daily lives that Christ is with us. Christ in me, the hope of glory, he's present. If we understood this, it, it would certainly change so many things in our lives. It would have to. If we grab hold of what it means to understand this, it, it would change so much of our conduct so much of our willingness to allow sinful things to infiltrate our lives, the, the, the sin that we so often get entangled in, the, the things that we allow into our lives that corrupt our faith, it, it would change that. You cannot just know God with us and, and continue living your life the exact same way. You can't know God, you can't know the price that was paid for your sins. You can't know the, the cost of that and the cost that we deserve to pay. And to know that that debt has been paid and not stand in awe of a God who gave it all for you and me. It requires nothing less than obedience and reverence from us. Nothing less. You see, true repentance for God, this is how if you wanna gauge in your life, it, it, true reverence for God, it will always reveal the difference between a heart that truly knows God and a life that simply knows of God. Because when we just know of God, we will just kind of continue to live our lives and add him in, you know, when we can. But a heart that truly knows God cannot help but walk with a reverence for who he is, a respect for the authority and the love and the grace that is found in him. May we have true reverence in our lives. May, may it just change our every day. May it call us to a place where we recognize that it's worth working out our faith. That's what Paul says. He says, work it out, grow, continue on in your faith in response, in obedience to the one who deserves our reverence. And then in verse 13, Paul continues on and he says, this is why. He, he says, you, you continue to grow in your faith and, and walk with that reverence for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order 
to fulfill his good purpose. We continue in this and we continue to walk this out because God is at work in you. He's at work in your life. He's continually at work. This isn't, you know, hey, I'll go live out my faith and I hope at some point God will reveal himself and I might get to know him and experience his presence. It's a working out of my faith with an understanding that he's already ever present and at work. That's why Paul began this whole thing off saying, like, he who began a good work in you, not who, he who wants to do a work in you, he who might do a work in you, he who began wants to continue that work. And now he's calling them to this place to walk out in reverence. And he reminds them because God is at work, empowering and enabling and calling believers to step into spaces and places to accomplish his purposes. Paul breaks it down this way. He says that there's two ways that God is at work in these believers. The first is this. He says that he is at work to produce the will, the desire, the heart to grab hold of Christ's purpose and his mission and the things that he has to accomplish. And then he says that he's at work producing the action and the willingness to accomplish those things. That's a beautiful thing for us. You're loved by a God who's at work producing the heart in you to grab hold of who he is and then the desire to live those things out. And, and the more that we press into who he is, the greater our heart for Christ becomes, the more like Jesus we become, and we can't help but live those things out. And, and Paul says this is exactly the work being done in your life as you press in with that reverence, as you continue forward. And we need Jesus to be at work in our lives this way. Our world needs Christians to have him at work in their lives this way. We need to be willing to become the heart of Jesus. We need to become more like him so that we can become the hands and feet of Christ to a hurting and broken world. Our world needs believers who live this out and who wake up every day with a heart burdened for the loss so that we can go out and become the hands and feet of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to know him. That we would walk the walk, not just talk the talk. That's what will happen when we live this way. We, we can't just talk the talk. We, can, we can't just live safe, comfortable Christianity. Because the reality is there's so many times as we live out our faith, we look for the safe, comfortable, what's the safest way that I can live this out? And so we just do that nominal Christianity that I was talking about last Sunday. We just show up to church, you know, once a month or once every four weeks, once every six weeks, whatever that looks like. And God says, there's so much more for you. I'm at work producing in you. If you would allow, if you would walk this out with a reverence and an obedience for who I am, I'm at work producing a heart in you so that you will desire the things that I, I want you to desire so that you can have an impact in this world. This is what we need to live out, my friends. There are some amazing things that the creator of the universe wants to do in and through your lives. I can never escape that reality when I end up on this stage. You were created to uniquely impact this world. The creator of the universe wants to partner with you. He wants to work in and through your life. He doesn't have to, he doesn't need to, but he chooses to because he loves you so much and wants to bless you as you bless others, as you see others set free for Christ. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 3.20. He says that because of the power of God at work within us, within those who believe, God is able to do immensely more than we could ever ask or imagine. It says, because of the power of him at work in believers, it's possible for immensely more, immeasurably more to be done than we could ask or imagine. 
And just in the last two verses, that's only two verses we've, we've gone through so far. Paul's encouraging and appealing to these believers, to the church, to grab hold of how beautiful that is. How beautiful the, the power of Christ at work in their lives is. How important the work of Christ for their lives in the world is. How important it is to walk in that obedience. And he says in response to that, he says in response to this call to, to, to walk this out, to, to understand there's an authority ever present, that you would walk in obedience, that you would walk in reverence, that you would understand that God's at work in you. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing now. We often like misquote this verse. Like I, I, you know, I can remember times as a kid, even, you know, mom being like, listen, go clean the Lego up in your room. And I'm like, I don't want to clean the Lego up in my room. She's like, listen, the Bible says do nothing with grumbling or arguing, right? And you're just like, well, guess what, mom? That was wrong. It was miscontextualized, okay? Paul was talking. You can take it that way and it does apply to our lives that way, okay? Honor your mother and father. You were right, mom. I love you. But what Paul's talking about here has far more to do with the first verses that just preceded it. He's saying, listen, for, for some of you, as you strive for unity, as you strive for oneness, as you strive to live this out even though I'm not present, as you strive to understand what it means to work your faith out with fear and trembling, do it without grumbling or arguing. And he's calling them back to this idea of in two ways. The first is this, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing with each other. It's the throwback to those first 11 verses, a reminder that the very thing that will rob them of living this out and accomplishing the things they're called to accomplish will be their arguing and grumbling amongst each other. When, when gossip and disunity and slander shows up amongst the body of Christ, amongst believers within our families, it can only rob us of living the way Christ has called us to live. And, and Paul's pointing back to the greatest threat to their effectiveness as the church and as believers. He says, do everything together without grumbling and arguing. Don't let it in. Don't let it get a foothold. And then he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing with God. With God. We often don't think, oh, like, what are you talking about? But, but Paul was very intentional when he was writing this letter to these believers because the same word that he used for grumbling in, in this chapter is the exact same word that you'll see through the Old Testament over and over again when uh, you read about the Israelites. In, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Numbers, it's the same word that Paul uses here. In, in grumbling is the same word when you read about the complaints and the grumbling and the complaining of the Israelites as they wandered the desert. He points back to that. And this is a people that would have understood. They would have understood the Israelites and, and the wandering of the desert, the Torah. They would have understand what Paul was pointing to. That, hey, he's saying, listen, you remember the Israelites that, that grumbled and complained about food and water and, and leadership and, and they complained about the journey. Really, what they were grumbling about, it wasn't the food, it wasn't the leadership. They were grumbling against God. And these people knew that. He says, you remember how that turned out for them? They found themselves freed from, from captivity. 430 years they were captives and, and they're freed from Pharaoh and, and, and Egypt and, and they found themselves wandering the desert complaining against a God that was showing up and providing the same God that delivered them, the same God that was leading them, the same God that was providing for them is the God they were complaining against. 
How often did their grumblings lead them into sin or blind them to the miracles happening all around them? It wasn't, wow, we were free. It's, oh God, we would have been better off in Egypt where they gave us meals. They became blind to the beauty of Christ, the beauty of God in their grumblings and their complainings. And Paul draws these believers back to this place. Said so the Israelites, they, they, they were losing that ability to trust the God who had provided. And they were missing out and they were becoming ineffective. And I wonder how often we do this in our own lives. We're in some of the hardest moments where maybe you feel like you're wandering and everything's going sideways. And yet, God is ever present. And meanwhile, we're like, God, where are you? We're grumbling and complaining against him. We have all these levied, angry statements towards a God who is right there with us. Paul says, don't live this way. He says, keep going, keep walking this out in obedience so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine amongst them like the stars in the sky as you hold firm to the word of life. He says, you need to be committed to walking this out in obedience, without grumbling or arguing, so that you can be blameless and pure, blameless of creating disunity, blameless of, of levying complaints against God, pure in heart, pure of sinful behavior, pure of disunity, pure of arrogance and pride. He brings these two things in. He says, as you live this out, as you pursue God, you're gonna find this is how your life will be. He says it's worth becoming blameless and pure out of that obedience. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 8, that he says the pure in heart will see God. We need to allow our lives to be lived in such a way that, that we would live that purity out and it will draw your attention. It will draw who you are. You will see God. You'll see the fullness of him at work in your life and in the world around you in a way that we're blind to so often. Those who walk in integrity with undivided loyalty will experience the fullness of God. And Paul says, you need to live this way. In a world that's all over the map, in a crooked and perverse generation, and what's interesting, that wording that Paul uses is there's no generation that's free of that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, as you live this out and you become pure and blameless in your actions and in your words as you walk in obedience and in reverence that you will become like stars that stick out in the night. Impossible to ignore, beautiful and inspiring. Think of the stars when you're out and, and you get away from the city lights and you look at the sky, how beautiful, how amazing is it? It's inignorable. I've never met anyone that says, you know what I hate? I just hate stars. They're just so gross to look at. I've never met anyone that makes that statement. And Paul says that like, man, as you live out these last 16 verses, that's what's gonna happen in your life. You're gonna stand out like stars in the night to a world around you that is crooked and broken and hurting. And Jesus in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, he says that you are the light of the world. You and me. The light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In 
the same way, let your good deeds, in the same way, let your life, in the same way, let your obedience, in the same way, let your following of Jesus shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Our lives should bless those around us. And our lives should bless and honor the one who paid it all. The first 18 verses of chapter two are a reminder from Paul that we have choices to make. As the church, as followers of Christ, that we have choices to make in our lives. And we need to be aware of how we are living. We cannot afford to miss this call to walk in obedience and reverence, to continue on in building our faith, and to do it all without grumbling or arguing. Otherwise, we will make our light useless. And you're not. You were never meant to be useless. You're never useless because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, created you and has purpose for you. You need to know that today, that you matter. You matter, my friends. But it also matters how we live our lives. God wants to do amazing things in and through each of you. That's the message I take from Paul here as he spurs these believers on is this reminder that there's an impact to be had because of the faith that is such a blessing to their lives, but it's meant to be a blessing to the world around them. And it calls me to a place where I say, God, like, am I living this out? Or am I just being a Christian? Is this just the spiritual thing I do? Or am I living this out in a way that it would impact the world and my family and my kids, my friendships, every store I walk into, every road I drive on? Paul says there's an impact to be made. And so how do we live this out? How do we, where do we go from here, church? I think there's three things that we can take away from today and I'm gonna give them to you quickly as we close. The first is, is that we need to walk the walk. We can't just be Sunday Christians. We can't just live out comfortable Christianity. You need to let your faith in Christ inform your daily living, not your daily living inform your faith in Christ. It's gotta come from that place of integrity where you're working out your faith in reverence for God who's ever present. He's with you right now when you leave this building. It's not just God at church. It's God in your car. It's God in your home. It's God with you, Emmanuel. And as you understand that, would you cultivate a life of obedience that says to him simply each and every day, who can I pray for today? Where do you want me to share faith today? Who can I share Jesus with today? How can I actively live this out? It's not just me doing devotions by myself at my table, which is beautiful and important. It's that end. How am I living this out? Walk the walk. Be willing to get uncomfortable. Be willing to literally be the hands and feet of Jesus. The second way we live this out is we do everything without grumbling or arguing. Such a key line, right? With God and with each other. Fight for unity. Fight for unity. We can't say it enough. Fight for unity. Grow your trust in a God who cares for you and provides for you. For some of you, you need to take some paper every day and start a list 
of the things that you can be thankful for. The things that you're like, God, thank you for providing these things. And then pray for him to grow that list and keep adding to that list so that you can come back to a place where every time you think you have something to levy against God and grumble and complain about, you can go back to that list and be like, oh man, but there's so many things I can be thankful for. I'm gonna go to that list instead. And the last thing, is that we hold firm to the word of life. It's the last part of verse 16a. If you wanna grow and mature your faith, if you wanna walk out obedience, if you wanna have a reverence for the creator of the universe who loves you, then get to know him. Get to know him. If you don't read your Bible, read your Bible. Start with five minutes a day. Start somewhere. Be intentional and consistent with this. You must know the word of God. And this is what we're told in Joshua 1.8. It says, study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything that is written in it. Only then, only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. That's the call. Get intentional. Live an effective faith creator of the universe loves you where you're at. He's calling you higher today, church. And so all over this place, God, and online, in Vagerville, in Chauvin, God, I thank you for each and every person that you know every hair on their head, you know every circumstance they've faced, you know every struggle, every frustration, every moment of grumbling and complaining, and you love us exactly where we're at, and you love us so more, so much that you're, uh, you're not willing to just leave us where we're at. And so you call us higher today, and God, I pray that we would live this out, that we would walk the walk that we would press into all that you have for us, that we would grow discontent with just a little bit of you and that it would rock our lives in such a powerful, amazing way that we would live out our faith in in just everything, in everything we do. Pray for those that need to make that choice today to say, I choose you, Jesus. I want what you have. Thank you for dying on the cross for me and forgiving my sins. I I choose today to follow you with my whole life. Lord, help us where we're at, whether it's making that choice for the first time now or just coming alive to the truth of it, to just live this out. We praise you. We love you. Pray it now in Jesus' name.